listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. For today's episode, we will be discussing Black Sabbath's first self-titled album. Released on February 13, 1970, Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath would lay the foundation for the Black Sabbath sound as well as help create the genre of heavy metal. We will look back on when we first discovered this milestone album and our early first impressions along with a track-by-track analysis. We will also examine its place in the Black Sabbath catalog, as well as its influence and legacy in heavy metal history. I'm your host, John, along with my co-host, Darren. So cue the rain, the thunder, and the tolling bell, and let's get started. All right, Darren. So when did you first discover the first Black Sabbath album? Well... Uh, it was a little ways into my discovery of Black Sabbath. It was, I think, I'm going to say the third or fourth. I know the first one I had was Never Say Die, and we, we talked about that before. Second one was Paranoid, and that was the album that really made me a Black Sabbath fan. And if memory serves, the album that followed that for me was Master of Reality, which I loved just as much as paranoid it was a it was a really good uh really good uh follow-up to to paranoid for me and if memory serves the one after that was the self-titled album and uh i was taken back by it initially the the vocals right away threw me off um did not sound like ozzy in fact i even even look at the back of the album cover to make sure that there wasn't somebody else singing. I knew that Ozzy was in the credits, but I wasn't sure if he, when Black Sabbath, the, the self-titled song came on, I, it just sounded so so different. So I was put off by that initially. Um, and then as things went on, uh, the same vocal pattern emerged um, until we got to NIB. And then NIB had more of a familiar sound. Uh, I like the riff a lot. Of course, you know, it's similar to Sunshine of Your Love by Cream. So it wasn't anything that was completely, it took me by surprise. It was a familiar, comfortable riff, uh, more straightforward song, less bluesy. I gravitated to that. And then from that song, worked my way out. But, you know, I, I think initially it was definitely the vocals that kind of threw me for a loop. Also, the um, the title track starting out the album for me at the time was a little bit boring. <laughs> I hate to say because I love the song so much and it's such an iconic song. Uh, but at the time, I, and I guess I just wasn't really, I, I really had no uh, idea of, of what this album sounded like. It was just another Black Sabbath album that I, that I didn't have that I needed to get. So I didn't go into it very prepared. And uh, and prior to, to this album, the songs that I had heard, a little bit more, you know, uh, more riff-oriented, uh, had uh, a better flow. 
I wouldn't say better flow, but had a, had a different flow. Things were would move along from song to from song to song on the album. This one, when the title track came in, it was just dense and it just dropped like a lead weight. And with the sound effects and the tolling bell, um, it took me back. That coupled with the vocals, but it didn't take long to wrap my head around it and to really really like it uh it was a scary song <laughs> uh but i think initially what i was a little bit hesitant about really embracing it what was the was the tempo you know it, it it took a while before things really kicked in and of course when it gets to that middle part and you know and things get you know it's almost like a film in a way you know you, you have the beginning of the movie and it gets to the you know, it goes through the plot line and then there's the climax and then the finale. So, and, and interestingly enough, um, you know, the way that Black Sabbath came about, of course, as you know, not to jump too far ahead of things, but, you know, the horror movie aspect that was sort of their intention um, as far as the image, the name, definitely hit home on this one, especially the title track, because it was like, like a soundtrack to a, to a horror film. So th those are my first impressions. Yeah, cool. Mine's similar to yours. I had discovered this album. I know I already had Paranoid. That was my first Black Sabbath album. And I'm pretty sure, I know I had Blizzard of Oz. I'm pretty sure I had Diary of a Madman. So my first impressions were similar to yours where, well, first of all, when I saw the album cover, I. I've, I've always loved that album cover. It just set the mood for the creepy horror vibe that uh, the album would have for me. And my impression was similar to yours when I turned it on. When I first heard Ozzy's voice, I was like, wow, okay, is, is this Ozzy or this is, this is really different? Uh, so I was taken a little bit aback by that, but I fell in love with it right from the beginning. The, the whole sound effects with the rain and the tolling bell and that when that first riff kicks in. And I remember also being taken aback a little bit by, in a good way by the mix. The mix has a really open, reverby sound with its very... A lot of high end. You can hear everything, the symbols, and and the way Black Sabbath starts with the the song Black Sabbath with the drums and the the, the toms on the drums are really echoey and sort of creepy. And then, like you said, it kicks in with the with the fast riff at the end, and I just I just loved it. It was uh, as a eleven twelve year old. Catholic school raised a kid hearing these kind of lyrics and this sort of creepy atmospheric vibe. I'd never heard anything, anything like that because although there's, I don't think there's anything as atmospheric as that on Paranoid or on Diary of a Madman, or maybe the song Diary of a Madman gave me that same reaction, that same sort of creepy, uh, scared, if you will, reaction. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been anything quite as effectively scary as the first Black Sabbath 
album um, and it's not just the title track it's it's all through the album there there is an atmosphere and i don't think i really you know honed in on the some of the things that that, that you mentioned you know symbol tones or or the mix per se i was, it was still pretty green to a lot of those i I, I wasn't listening through very critical ears at the time. <clears throat> All music kind of sounded the same. You either heard it. For me, I I could either hear things or I couldn't. I didn't grade things <laughs> based on what what a mix was. I, I didn't even know what a mix was. But how things met my ear was noticeable. And, of course, one of the things that was noticeable about this album was the atmosphere, the density of it. The density of the of the first song was right off the bat. That that was very noticeable. But moving along and moving through it from song to song, I mean, it was still it was still pretty consistent. There was a consistent density to it and atmosphere, um, which uh, has even at that time had a, had kind of a dated sound to it. But all the more cool because it, it gave it its own sort of uh feel its own vibe i hadn't i can't say that i heard anything that was was quite similar to the first black sabbath album so everything about it was completely unique to this album and my listening experience of it yeah it had a very uh open to me i just remember thinking it had a very sparse and open sound to it i had already heard heaven and hell and i probably i had mob rules and it just it it, the other things that i was listening to at that time like british steel and stuff like that it it just had a much more open sound and it 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 always made me think that they were even even though we know now that's not the case it sounded like it was recorded in a church or something it has this open cavernous sound and I, I you know I come back to the sound of the toms in the song Black Sabbath or uh, when Iommi does his unaccompanied uh, guitar parts in warning and stuff it sounds like he's sort of in this uh, there's a little bit of an echo or, or a reverb or something to it and even though it's a pretty sparse recording in the sense that there's for the most part one guitar one bass there would be some spots where the guitar is doubled but for the most part it's a pretty straightforward and as everybody knows uh, with the story it was a lot basically recorded live it's basically a a live album with a couple of over a couple of overdubs yeah here and there but it has a big just a big huge sound to it and as as a as as a young person who hadn't really heard that much hard rock and heavy metal at that point uh, it just it just stood out to me as being as being different and it added for me to the whole scary vibe of the album i i had paranoid i had heaven and hell and paranoid had moments on it that were kind of creepy but it wasn't it wasn't the same as as the song Black Sabbath. No. NIB I felt was kind of scary because again, as a young Catholic school lad, hearing somebody sing about Satan like that seemed like crazy. And I mean, we're gonna get into this later when we do a track by track analysis, but even a song like Sleeping Village, it seems so strange to me. And again, that sort of echoey reverby vibe to it, it just felt so so strange and wicked world was so ponderous and, and 
and dark sounding and Ozzy's voice on top of it has that lower emotional, uh, I don't want to say whiny, but he has this just emotive uh, voice on that first record like in in the song black sabbath when he does it you know god please god help me i mean as as an 11 year old kid i was just like whoa yeah the album cover the just the sound just the whole the whole package played into it for me whereas i don't think when i looked at paranoid that album cover didn't feel like anything with the album for me it was a disconnect between the album cover i agree and the album whereas with black sabbath the whole package the song titles the album cover the mix the tone of ozzy's voice the the sound effects the the sparseness of some of the songs the weird little interludes it just all all added up to a real I think interesting the, feeling for me. Yeah, I think one of the things that helps this album um, be the album that it is, be the uh, the iconic heavy blues, rock, metal, proto-metal, proto-doom metal album that it is, is the way that you know the songs all kind of flow into one another. And we had mentioned this before in our Judas Priest thing, right? I, I talked about the producer, Roger Bain. Uh, you know, Roger Bain also did, uh, he did the first three Black Sabbath albums. And uh, I think with, I think I read somewhere that basically he just more or less, according to the band, according to Bill Ward, Bill Ward said that it, it became apparent after the third album that they didn't really need him, that, that, that Tony felt, you know, competent, felt pretty confident that he could move forward producing the band's albums. But, you know, for the record label, uh, especially for the band on their first album, they had to go in with a producer. And uh, I think Tom Allen. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I think Tom he was also involved involved in in it. Yeah. He was involved as an engineer, I believe. Yeah, right. So so they, you know, I guess Tony Iommi felt after the third album that he could go move forward on his own and take the band through their own, you know, production. But uh, I think Roger Bain really shape these albums and I think there is a continuity um, in atmosphere between the first and the third I mean I can, I can definitely I, mean, I think volume four was the first one where there was a different production quality yeah but I think I think the first three are, are really similar but on this album that atmospheric heavy dense vibe was really established and the way that the songs just kind of go from one to the next um, you know there's a there's a stop between Black Sabbath and, and Warning, but you know, Wasp, Behind the Walls, Sleep, basically NIB, all flow into one. Likewise, on side two, you have a bit of Fingers, Sleeping Village, uh, Warning, you know, all one song, very jammy. Um, and and I, I guess the story goes that they basically treated the album recording session as a as a live show. They went and they just basically did their set. They did their live yeah. set. It feels like that. It feels like you just said, like there is a flow to it that they, that they thought this out, yeah. that it, it wasn't a case of they put these songs together and then they had to figure out what order they were going to put yeah. them in. They just came in and they just sort of played them live. Although to go back to your point about the album production, I, for me, this album sticks out differently than anything else in their, in their catalog. I don't, for me, it sounds more different 
the difference between Black Sabbath and Paranoid is, is more, more for me than the difference between Paranoid and Master of Reality. To me, Master of Reality and Paranoid are, have a little bit of a similar vibe, but there's just something I keep coming back to this reverb and echoey and the, the, the bright cymbal sound on, on the first record that uh, seemed to just be different to me that they never paranoid to me is a little drier sounding same thing with master of reality if you listen to the drums on paranoid and master of reality they feel more dry to me whereas on uh the first album they just have this this big sort of echoey sound like in the wizard for instance uh, all the cymbals are ringing out and just the drums in general just sound they don't sound like they're close mic. They sound like maybe there was just a room, <laughs> you know, just a couple microphones approximately placed around the drums, and it really just picked up on on the room sound. And maybe I don't ever thought of this before, right at this very moment. But is it my favorite Bill Ward drum sound? It might be. It might be for me the first album. Yeah, I think I'd lean more towards uh, Paranoid for Bill Ward's drums, or or Volume Four. Uh, but you're right. There is more of a reverb sound on, on the drums. The drums aren't quite as loud in the mix, I think. Um, I think the guitar, the guitar and bass really, really dominate this album in a good way. Um, and what's interesting, I guess, is that I think Iommi's intention was to record the album with his Strat. Stratocaster, yeah. And he, I think the only song he actually recorded with a Strat was Wicked World. Um, but it didn't And you can out. hear it a little bit if you, if you listen to that song. You can hear, especially in the unaccompanied guitar solo spot, you can hear it has sort of a uh, Richie Blackmore, Jimi Hendrix, Strat, clean, stratty kind of, kind of sound. Another interesting note and a myth that I would like to dispel that gets mentioned all the time. I even read it on Wikipedia right before we started this. I opened up Wikipedia just to get my brain juices flowing on this. And everyone always says, which is true, that Tony Iommi did lose his fingertips in the accident. And they said because he lost his fingertips, he tuned the guitar down. On the first Black Sabbath album and Paranoid, the guitar is not tuned down. They did not tune the guitar down until Master of Reality. And then the next three records, Master of Reality, Volume 4, and... uh, uh, sabotage would be Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Sorry, would be tuned down. Uh, but for the first album, they are not tuned down, and not only are they not tuned down, I think where the confusion is is that he did use lighter gauge strings. He changed the strings on his guitar to make them easier for him to press down. But they are not tuned down. And another little interesting guitar trivia out there: the song Black Sabbath. Typically, heavy metal songs are in for people who aren't guitar players, E, which is the lowest string on the guitar. So you can get the lowest sound on your guitar. The song Black Sabbath is in G, which is a higher pitched than E. So the song Black Sabbath, one of their creepiest, doomiest sounding songs, not only is it not tuned down, it's not even in the key of of E. So it just goes to show you that you don't need to be tuned super, super low to, to sound creepy or atmospheric or, or doomy. And, and the song Black Sabbath is, is proof of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the production has a lot to do with how this album comes across, too. It's like we talked about, you know, the, uh, 
some of the tones, the uh, the atmosphere in the studio. I think that's one of the things, other than you know guitar tuning, but I think the production is what really makes this album absolutely what it is and, and carry the atmosphere that it does. So where does this rank for you in the in the Black Sabbath catalog? You know, some days it's number one. Actually, um, I mean, with Black Sabbath. I mean, they're all interchangeable. I mean, they're, they're, they're all like my children. <laughs> I love them all. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to say, like, more recently, probably number, number three. Um, right now, my, my favorite is volume four, probably followed by Technical Ecstasy, and then probably this one. I, I tell you, it was a real breakthrough for me with this album, was getting the original Vertigo, Vertigo UK uh, first pressing and uh, the the sonic clarity between that and the Warner Brothers version really lifted it up to a, to a higher level for me and I really could wrap my head around it and I, listening to the vertigo the UK vertigo um, it really sounds like you're in the room with the band while they're recording this, this Warner Brothers version has kind of a, a more muddier uh, I hate to use the word muddy because it's not it's not a bad sounding record but by comparison it, it has kind of a muddy almost muddled tone which I was used to I mean that's the first way that I heard the album but when I yeah. when I when I got the UK version I listened to it it just opened it up completely I was like oh my god this is this is amazing interesting Sounds and and isn't the uh the UK version, for, for people out there who may not be aware of this, the UK version swapped out the song Wicked World and put uh, Evil Woman, which was a cover by a band named The Crow. Crow. Yeah, and I'm glad <laughs> that we had the US version because, well, first of all, I love the song Wicked World. And honestly, I think even though the song Warning is a cover, the song Warning, a cover of a song by, for those who may not know, by uh, the Ainsley Dunbar Project. No, retaliation. 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 Right. Uh, is a way more fitting cover, and it fits the mood of, of the album because it has kind of a bluesy, doomy riff, if you will. Wicked World, I love that song. So to take Wicked World out and put Evil Woman, which is another cover and, and a cover that, in my opinion, it, it would have just, it would have really affected the flow of the the record from Evil Woman is too upbeat, if, yeah, if you will. It just, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked. Uh, you know, I, I guess it would, I, I guess it created some levity overall to, to the, you know, the context of the album. But you're right. I think Wicked World works much better. It, it's more consistent with the other material on the album. And on side two, yeah, I mean, it just it has a nice natural flow from uh, Wicked World through Warning. In fact, you know, I, I was waiting for you to mention that Warning was a cover. Of course you know, but I wasn't sure. But um, what's unusual about, you know, a band doing uh, a cover on their first album you would think that in you know, the first album there'd be such a surplus of material because you know you have all this time prior to that first album to compile material to record it's kind of strange that there's two 
cover songs on the first album. But I guess bands at that time were, were doing a Deep Purple. You know, they did a couple covers of Hey Joe and yeah, it was a pretty common common thing back then. And and, and interesting, well, two points. I wanted to go back to Evil Evil Woman for a second. E, if I'm correct, Evil Woman was recorded as as a single or as a separate thing before these recording sessions for the first album, right? Yeah, it it, it sounds and it also sounds a little bit. It sounds out of play. That's the other reason why I I I, I would not have liked having that as my in the version of the record that that i had because sonically it doesn't sound the same as as everything else and uh, the other point I, I wanted to bring up is, is i'm i'm currently reading a book by martin popoff called who invented heavy metal and it's done in a timeline type of format a month by month year by year thing leading up to what he considers and what i agree with him is sort of the birth place of uh, heavy metal which is 1970 and of course the album black sabbath along with deep purple in rock in the first uri heap album but i was struck by in the timeline they mention uh when black sabbath changed their name from earth to black sabbath and there's some quotes in there from like their early manager jim simpson and some other people that were around the band about when they started playing some of these songs like black sabbath and nib and it wasn't as far in front of the recording of this album as as i had sort of originally thought in my mind i was thinking that they had been playing these songs for a good year or more but from this timeline that they lay out and of course it's it's not like anybody had a diary or something from back then this pulling this all from people's memories they didn't have these songs it wasn't really that that long before the recording session so in a way i could kind of see how they were kicking it around as a blues band for so many years they decide to change, they write the song Black Sabbath, they realize they're onto something, and then the direction of the band changes, and then they're ready to go into the studio and they haven't quite worked up a full album's worth of material, so they reach back into something that they had done in their live sets, a, a, blues, a blues number that survived from their original days as a, as a blues band. So that might have been part of it too, it's just that they, just flat out didn't quite have all enough enough of their own original material at that point to to pull off an entire album. Well, I, I, in 1969, they were playing under the name Black Sabbath. Uh, this album came out, I think, February 13th. February 17th, I think. 13th, yeah, Friday the 13th. Yeah, it was Friday. Yeah, the 13th, Friday the 13th, February so, yeah, 17th. And uh, so, I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty early into 1970. So, you know, a lot of the gigs and, and a lot of the material was, was starting to take shape in the second part of 1969. And of course, the Dumfries show, which I think was in October, that was like the holy grail of Black Sabbath live recordings. I think it was one yeah, of Yeah, for the longest time. When that surfaced on the internet, people were going crazy. Yeah. And what was the set list on that? They play Black Sabbath, right? Uh, I... Yeah, I mean, I have it. I have a bootleg vinyl. They they do uh, memory serves. They, they do Black Sabbath. Uh, Black Sabbath, I think, comes in cut off. They're even on the master, uh, and there's a whole story behind it. But uh, for whatever reason, the master was. I think it comes in like maybe half into 
Black Sabbath, and then uh, you know, Warning, uh, Sleeping Village. It was a relatively short set. I think it's like 30 minutes long. But, um, yeah, and a couple of blues numbers. And isn't Song for Jim on there too? No. No, that's another bootleg from... There's another bootleg floating around with a... That was a demo. It was a demo that they did uh, at some point earlier. I, I, I don't think that was actually Black Sabbath. I think that was either... Uh, I think it was Earth when they were still... Yeah, maybe. Under the name Earth. So that wasn't really... I mean, you know, Earth to Black Sabbath, I guess it's sort of, you know, just a technicality. But, you know, the Dumfries was... That was the first known... One of the first known live if not the first known, the first Black Sabbath show that was very elusive there for a while. Which Yeah. Uh, for me, this album, as far as where I rank it, I, I'm similar to you in that you talk to me on certain days and, and I'll tell you that it's my number one. The only criticism I would lay against this record is... Would I have preferred another original song in place of some of the extended guitar solo jamming? Maybe on certain days, I, I feel like that. Like if there could have been another original song in here, uh, it might have fleshed out the album a little bit more. It feels like with the cover song and the extended guitar solo stuff that Again, maybe going back to what I mentioned earlier, they didn't quite have enough material, so they were just sort of doing what they did live, which was to extend these some of the songs out to eat up some time. It's still super cool, and I remember the first time I heard it, I, I just thought it was great. And yeah, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think there's anything I change about it. I, I think the way that it goes from the very first song, from Black Sabbath to, to Warning, I think is perfect. I couldn't imagine hearing it any other way. Um, you know, the UK version with Evil Woman kind of is a little strange when you get to side two, especially if your your first experience with the album is hearing it with Wicked World. And going from that to Evil Woman, it's a little strange. But otherwise, no, I mean, I think even the jamming and, and the musical interludes, I mean, it really builds the atmosphere, and it's just uh, a lot of peaks and valleys, and I think it really just works almost like one long song in a way you know it's just it's a, it's an entire it's an album that feels like a composition and uh, i'm sure there was no thinking about the sequence of this album that just kind of fell into place could be wrong yeah and after all these years i i couldn't hear it any different after all these years that's why it would be extremely disorientate disorientating to me to hear evil woman put in place i've heard this album so many times that i i hear what's coming next i <laughs> It's like you said, it's like a movie. It would be like taking a movie and chopping out seven minutes of the movie and inserting, inserting something else. It just, it just wouldn't work. But I'll tell you how it does work with Evil Woman. Is I think there was one of the Universal, I and mean, I have so many different CD versions of this too. Uh, on, on one CD version I had, I'm pretty sure that it follows the U.S. version, song order, and then puts... I think it puts Evil Woman at the very end after one. Yeah. And that makes sense because it does sound like a bonus track. Yeah. So, you know, you know, in that regard, it's cool. Um, in the middle of the album, though, from start to finish in a CD format, it's like, yeah, it's like a commercial interlude, a <laughs> commercial break. You know, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, and uh, 
Yeah, I agree. And the first time, I forget what CD version that was that I got where it was tagged on to the end of it. I, that's what I thought, that it was just a single or something that was just added here as a bonus track. And I was surprised when I read later on that it was that uh, the first time people in the UK heard Wicked World was on the We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll mm-hmm. compilation. So, but, uh, so what do you think about this album's place in the history of heavy metal in general and its impact and legacy. You know, a a lot of people say that this is the first heavy metal album. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I I think that even when it came out, I think it was influencing bands, you know, um, a lot of their contemporaries were, well, I mean, I think they were discovered by Alan Alvin Lee 10 years after who, who saw something in the band that was unique I don't think they sound anything like 10 years after, but I think he saw them and appreciated that they were onto something different, that it was a new sound, that it was something that was exciting. And I think, don't think he was the only one that, you know, made that assessment. I, I think they're also um, influencing some of their contemporaries too. I know over in the United States, I mean, band like Bang, I mean, they're, they're almost sort of like the, to me, even though they weren't on quite the level as BOC, Boys to Cult, who were conceived to be the American version of Black Sabbath, to me, Bang were more the American version of Black Sabbath. The lyrics yeah. were dour. The the, the uh, vocals were high pitched, like Ozzy. Yeah, and you know that to they were kind of and they, they were influenced by Black Sabbath. Um, so, I mean, I think even at the time in the early 70s, I, I think that they were influential. I think they were turning heads and and getting people to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, man, you know, let's think this thing through again. I just heard this band and they're incredible. and like, I want to do something like that, you know. Yeah. As time went on, God. Yeah, as time went on, I, I think it was ever present in, in, in mostly heavy metal. I, and I think because of of just the sinister sound. I don't think there's any other genre that was more inviting to the sinister sound, the the big guitar tone. There was no other genre, I think, that was inviting to this album as much as, as heavy metal as it became known, as, as it became a genre, you know, recognized this album and, and built from this album. So as a, as Black Sabbath is one of the first heavy metal bands, I would have to say, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, I think that's pretty much a no-brainer. I mean, other people talk about bands like Blue Cheer and some Grand Funk, but man, Black Sabbath was just, they were heavy. It was, it was heavy. Yeah, and the difference for me between where I, I agree with you, I would say that this is the first heavy metal album, and the difference for me between Black Sabbath and Blue Cheer, or let's even just, a lot of people say, I mentioned this earlier, that 1970 was the birthplace of heavy metal with the first Black Sabbath album, Deep Purple, Deep Purple and Rock, and Uriah Heep, very heavy, very humble. Mm -hmm. And for me, the difference between Black Sabbath and those other two albums is the dark, like you mentioned, sinister sound, the dark overtones, the entire package, the album cover, the song lyrics, the minor key, dark sounding riffs. Uriah Heep maybe had a little of that on their first album, 
deep purple. There's heavy elements on, on, in rock, but I don't think it has anything that's as dark and sinister sounding, uh, maybe Child in Time. But You're forgetting about Mark One, Deep Purple Mark One as well. I mean, we're, we're, we're picking up from, I mean, the, the first two, Shades of Deep Purple and then Deep Purple, I think were more chronologically in time with this. Maybe In Rock came out after Black Sabbath? Black no, Sabbath. came out in 1970. Okay. Yeah, so, those three albums, the Uriah Heap and the Deep Purple In Rock came out in 1970. So that's why a lot of times people say 1970 is the year and the three albums that that helped define heavy metal, which I can understand that because I think Deep Purple represents a certain part of the will go on to influence a certain part of the heavy metal sound whereas i think black sabbath influenced it with the darkness the sinister sounds the, the a lot of the minor key riffing and everything like that and i would put uriah heap somewhere in between deep purple and uh deep purple and black sabbath as far as well, a couple of things that said deep purple and uriah heap apart from black sabbath was they had very prominent keyboards yeah, organ. I mean, that pretty much, you know, partly defined their sound. Black Sabbath had no organs. It was all guitar driven. So it, it stood apart from Deep Purple. And, but they did have a mouth harp. Yeah. <laughs> harp, right? It was a sleeping village. Yeah. Just think so, if history had gone a little differently, the mouth harp could have been the, the sound of heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about that? So they, yeah, they did have that, and that was unusual. But it, it again, I mean, it fit in perfectly, and I, I couldn't imagine hearing Sleeping Village without the, the mouth harp. But your eye heap and, and Deep Purple, I think at that time had a lot of. Uh, well, I mean, Deep Purple especially was more of a uh, art, a little bit of an R and B, more rock and roll. They had some, um, you know, the Child in Time on In Rock was pretty epic, pretty emotional. Um, but I think you know that that struck that struck a different chord. There was nothing really particularly sinister. I mean, the heavy tones, you know, the guitar, the warm yeah, guitar tone, virtuosity, and the keyboards and, sure. and the guitar. But but like you said, it didn't have the same dark, sinister vibe that that uh, the first Black Sabbath album did. I think maybe your eye heat may have come close. I think if you're going to say, you know, in in, in Order of Sinister would probably be Black Sabbath, then your Eye Heap, and then Deep yes. Purple. We're just singling out those three bands. Uh, Gypsy is 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 pretty dark, you know, yeah. very heavy. It's, it, it almost sounds like something that could be a part of the first Black Sabbath. Yeah, album. and if you if uh, for for some people may not know this out there that the U.S. version of the first Uriah Heap album swaps out the song Lucy Blues with a song called Bird of Prey. And Bird of Prey is a very metal-ish sounding song for, for 1970, which makes that album a lot heavier. Lucy Blues, is, as, a, as the title suggests, is just kind of a, a loose blues jam. So to swap that out and put in Birds of Prey makes, in my opinion, makes the first year I heap album a lot more heavy, a lot more humble, yeah. if you will. <laughs> it does. I, I really like Bird of Prey. Um, it was also on to be later. It's kind of weird. Salisbury, right? It was on Salisbury. It was a different version. I don't like it as much as the version that was on, um, that became part of uh, the self-titled Uriah Heap album, U.S. version, Mercury. Um, in fact, more often than not, when I want to listen to the first Uriah Heap album, I will reach for the uh, 
the U.S. version for Bird of Prey. I also like the sequence, too. Uh, Come Away Melinda is one of those songs where, you know, not really too crazy about, but Bird of Prey, very heavy song, and it kind of evens things out a little bit. And when we're talking about Black Sabbath, Your Eye Heap, Deep Purple, the album, the Your Eye Heap album that I'm thinking of is the U.S. version of the self-titled because it includes Bird of Prey. Yeah. Yeah. And it should also be noted that the first Black Sabbath album reached number 23 on the U.S. charts and number eight on the U.K. charts. So it it made an impact. It wasn't like a typical trajectory for bands from that era was your first two albums didn't really do a whole lot. And it wasn't until you got to your third or fourth album where you really started picking up some traction. But you know, really right out of the gate uh, for an album like that to hit number 23 in the u.s and number eight in the uk it 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 made made an impact and as you mentioned earlier it it influenced i think a lot of bands you mentioned bang and i think a lot of the bands that were just getting started that maybe put out their first albums in 72 or 73 uh black sabbath was they were making an impact right from the word go yeah yeah it was was definitely something that i think uh really blew people's minds. It's interesting. I didn't know that about how, how well it charted in the U.S. And it's kind of strange that it did without any, any single, really. You know, without yeah, any- and at that point, they hadn't... I don't think they toured the U.S. until after Paranoid was yeah. out. So they hadn't toured the U.S. I, I, they didn't get any radio airplay. So that's a good, good, good question. Like, how did that album do so well over here? It must have maybe just word of mouth or... Uh, I don't know. It's just, I guess, I guess word of mouth or the music press, even though they, they claim, and I, I believe them that they were slagged off pretty hard in the music press, but maybe sure. in a way it's sort of the, uh, any kind of, any kind of press is good press. And maybe some people read this and saw the album cover, heard the name uh, and just the entire package. It doesn't, doesn't take a leap of the imagination. You hear, you see the name Black Sabbath, you see that album cover, you flip it over, you see song titles like Wicked World and Sleeping Village and The Wizard. And it, it's, it's setting up a, it sets yeah. a tone. There was also a thing going on, in, in a, predominantly in the UK, I think, where there was a strong interest in the occult. And how it manifested itself into rock music. Uh, yeah, Black Widow was was doing. It was much lighter, kind of almost folk rock, but with you know satanic occult lyrics. Um, and of course, you know, the story is that the band was rehearsing, or they were in a flat, and and you know they were talking about the name Earth. And Geezer looked across the street and saw a a marquee of a movie theater with Black Sabbath was playing, and Black Sabbath, the movie, came out in 1969, I believe, Boris Karloff, and said, hey, you know, people love to be scared, you know, it's, it's, it's a really attractive thing for people, people love to go see horror movies, what if we did that with music, what would happen, well, change the name to Black Sabbath, and the interest was, you know, was no, noticeable, I mean, they became more attractive. People were intrigued by the name, the dark, you know, the music that accompanied the concept. It almost became a concept, you know, this, this horror 
horror band, even though they they seemed like they were pretty lighthearted people. <laughs> you know, Ozzy was kind of crazy, and in a lot of the pictures, they were sort of well. Some of the early pictures, black and whites, were kind of dark, but it's you know they got more photo friendly. You know, you could see them sort of like smiling, and you know, it seemed like they weren't oh so serious as the name Black Sabbath and some of the music on the on the album would suggest. But I think the thing about it was that it struck a chord in people because you know i think people love to be scared they have a, a fascination with horror and things that scare scare them and i think black sabbath the band and the music kind of hit people on that level and i think that's one of the reasons why they became so successful curiosity you see this album on a record store shelf with the witch or whatever whatever she is the the, the mysterious woman on the front with the the cool art nouveau very sparse woodsy album cover i mean it looks intriguing that's a good point because if you think about what was going on in the world at that time you you were it was post woodstock altamont had happened so as a lot of people point to altamont as sort of being the end of the summer of love the the flower power hippie thing. Uh, the U.S. was embroiled in the Vietnam War. Uh, it, the rise of people's fascination with the occult. Uh, I'm not sure when uh, Anton LaVey shows up on the scene, but if it isn't around that time, it's not too long afterwards. So yeah, and then Black Sabbath is there with this image, with the name, with the sound, and you can understand how it fit into maybe where the the mood was of the world at that time which was maybe a little bit dark yeah i think it was and i think it had a lot to do with exactly the points that you just mentioned the uh the vietnam war era and things it was you know it was no longer the summer of love you know altamont was the end of the summer of love and i think uh the culture music reflected that you know, it was a change Figuratively, it was a change of seasons, and the season was getting darker. And Black Sabbath's music was there as a soundtrack for that. Um, but I think the original question was, where do they fit in with the – were we still back where they fit in with heavy metal? Sure, if we want to put a ribbon on that, yeah. Yeah, put a ribbon on that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I think they're definitely – I think Black Sabbath would be the first heavy metal band. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that – most people wouldn't wouldn't argue with that, and when this discussion comes up, it's it's almost always cited as as where it started. And when you consider where Black Sabbath went, and it just makes sense to say that okay, this was this is where heavy metal got its start. So, all right, uh, shall we go down song by song on the album? So we've got Black Sabbath first, and we kind of talked talked a lot about this one but uh you got any other thoughts on the first song black sabbath um I, one thing we didn't touch on earlier we talked about i talked about the atmosphere we talked about um the structure of the song how it starts out and where it where it ends you know the the fast part and to the ending but i i think uh the lyrics are interesting too you know um very uh I guess you could call them satanic, very horror, horror movie-esque, hammer horror, 
you know, for those that don't know, Hammer was a film studio in England that came out with, uh, it was sort of like the, the UK equivalent of Universal Studios, but, you know, quite a few years later. Um, but Frankenstein, Dracula were all revamped and represented for the UK, and it was a very, uh, very popular film studio and movie house. And uh, Black Sabbath, the lyrics sort of accompany that, in my mind. And uh, I think that's where we really hit home with the horror aspect of Black Sabbath, the band. And it's pretty much where it kind of ends, too, especially on this album. Because then we start moving into you know, different territories. We're going into The Wizard, which was a little bit more, you know, Tolkien-esque, I guess. Um, and it was a little bit of a different vibe moving from Black Sabbath to, to The Wizard with the harmonica. Definitely more of a bluesy, heavy blues song. For sure. And I always liked the way... Well, for me, the song Black Sabbath, it's just the whole, the whole thing is, is just fantastic. The, the sound effects at the beginning, Ozzy's voice in this, the, oh, God, please, God, help me. It's just, yeah. I mean, scary and sends a shiver up your spine. And I always loved the, the way the guitar solo is at the end and the way it builds. Yeah. And when it ends, it, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
of their sound. Uh, interesting, just to go back to Black Sabbath for a second, and I was trying to remember if I've heard this or only ever read about it, that there is another verse to this song. Is, that, is there a recording of that out there somewhere, or is that just something I, I read, read about? I've never heard that. Have uh, you ever, you've heard the, those John Peel session versions? Yeah. There isn't an extra verse on that, is there, during the song Black Sabbath? Uh, no, but you know, here's the thing with, with, with some of those early recordings. Um, you know, Ozzy wasn't, wasn't very good at remembering lyrics, and sometimes he would improv things. Like, they, at, one, at one time there was different, different lyrics to uh, War Pigs, and they were called Walpurgis Night. Night or, and, uh, and, and I think a lot of it was just kind of ad-libbed by Ozzy. <laughs> So if there is anything that's different about the John Peel sessions as opposed to the studio, it was probably just accidental. Yeah, I think it has a little bit of an extra, maybe the ending is, uh, maybe the ending is a little bit different. Maybe, but I think it might have just been something that was more of an impromptu type of thing that somebody messed up. Maybe. Well, I'm, I'm reading here from Wikipedia and according to Wikipedia, a version of this song from Black Sabbath's first demo. Now, I'm a, yeah, it says first demo exists on the Ozzy Osbourne compilation album, The Ozman Cometh. The song has an extra verse with additional vocals before the bridge. Interesting. And it says it's tuned differently, too. It says the guitar and bass are tuned differently. Yeah, that, I don't think Interesting. that's... A I don't think that's a demo. Is that a demo? No, it's he, he lists it on that album as a demo, but it came out later that those were from a John Peel session that yeah. they had done. So I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to that. I knew I had read that or, or heard that, that somewhere. But. Again, I'm, I'm going to say that it was probably one of those things that was a little bit of an improv. It was probably impromptu. Things kind of got maybe shuffled around a little bit in, in the live situation. Yeah, but probably. Who knows? All right, so we covered the wizard. Anything else you want to say about the wizard? Yeah, I think we pretty much covered that. All right, well, next we have Wasp slash Behind the Wall of Sleep slash basically slash NIB, but I guess we can just take Wasp and Behind the Wall of Sleep, which is one confusing aspect of this album. I remember as a young kid not understanding all this song, all these extra song titles, which in this case, I believe, I guess Wasp is supposed to represent that drum, that drum beat that, or no, that drum beat is at the end right before it basically comes. I guess just the intro to what we, what we call behind the wall of sleep, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's what it is. There's no time signature next to it. So, and black Sabbath was, was the first band I ever saw that would do things like that. Yeah. Luke's wall. Right. Right. Use the word in, interpolating <laughs> and then have like little subsets and, you know, little, and, and, and master of reality did that. They had a uh, death mask, which was death the, mask. Yeah end of uh children of the grave which i think was omitted from the, some the conjuring film. wasn't there something else on Master yeah Reality? yeah i think that one of the pressings it wasn't necessarily the first pressing but it was like an alternative pressing had all these different additional song titles just for little little musical passages that were only maybe like 30 seconds or something and that's sort of the case of wasp here it was like more or less a, just the beginning of 
of the song Behind the Wall of Sleep, but they decided that, you know, they would call it something. And it looks like, you know, the album's more full. When you look at it like, oh, wow, yeah. all, you know, there's all these songs. Um, but and it, and it kind of starts with the same kind of groovy vibe a little bit following mm-hmm. after the wizard but then when it drops down into the and i always loved on that song the way ozzy i it i don't think it's an effect i think he sang it twice yeah and they just panned it really heavily and maybe yeah. they're slightly out of time with each other so as as it's a fun little thing. And as a kid, I used to love doing this where if you just turn on one speaker on your stereo uh-huh. yeah. and listen to that, you'll hear it without that effect, which sounds when you've heard it a million times with the vocals like that, it just sounds, it sounds fun to listen to it with, with just, with just one voice. But I always thought that effect on his voice is super cool. And uh, yeah, that is really cool. You know, that's definitely a part of the song that I look forward to hearing the way that Ozzy's voice. And, it, you know, it's funny because Ozzy, this is the only album where his voice really sounds like this. It has more of a, you know, a, a deeper tone. And it might, may have been under some pressure because um, I think they, you know, they really wanted to have that, that bluesy sound. And Ozzy's voice is, is a little thin, a little more on the higher range. So it may, be, it may have been a conscious decision for him to try to make his voice lower and more bluesy and you know deeper and maybe more masculine for lack of a better word um i remember one of my first impressions was that i thought he sounded like he was drunk <laughs> you know, like slurred and you know his voice was sort of like he was singing while he was drunk and of course you know the, the paranoid his voice sounded almost completely different and it was still you know you could tell it was the same person but it was very different yeah yeah for sure yeah, but it's Behind the Wall of Sleep. It's just a cool song. I love the groove in it. I love when it kicks into the ba-dum, ba-da-dum, and the bass starts getting really active. And we, yeah. we haven't thrown, I haven't talked about Geezer really, which maybe can segue us into, into our next, next thing. But Geezer's bass just sounds great on this whole record. And the way the record is mixed so simply, we're, we're, for the most part, it's just one guitar and the bass. You can just hear... And yeah. are sort of separated where the bass is in one channel and the guitar is in another. So another fun experiment for everybody out there. Turn on one side of uh, your, your stereo, turn it all the way to the left or to the right, and you'll hear either just guitar and drums and the, some of the vocals, or you'll hear just the bass by itself a lot of times. And Geezer, especially on this one, really starts stretching out and, and, and jamming, whereas the two songs before this, he's kind of playing a little bit tighter to the riff. But yeah. in this, you get a little bit of that when a guitar solo kicks in here, that, that thing that Geezer would, would do like after this in, say, War Pigs under the guitar solo in War Pigs where Geezer is just doing his best Jack Bruce and just going yeah. sort, of, sort of crazy underneath it. And this is what you get in uh, Behind the Wall of Sleep. Well, what a great bass player Geezer was. He really occupied his own space. He never tried to... Uh, follow the guitar exactly. In fact, there's very few times when I can really hear him doing the same thing as what Tony's doing. And you, you're a guitar player; you, you're probably more perceptive of that than I am. But uh, when I listen to early Black Sabbath and especially this album, Master of Reality, um, I really hear Geezer doing his own thing, really elaborating on the rhythm section. And he stands apart. Bill Ward's very solid, but also you know with a lot of finesse and a lot of 
you know, like a, a jazz aesthetic that he applies to Black Sabbath music. Moritoni is, you know, he's his own master of tone and, you know, his solos and just his riffs. Each person has, has their own value. It's, it's, um, it's just what's so amazing about Black Sabbath, the band, is that everyone seemed to really pull their own weight. You know, each person was an important component to, to the whole thing. Uh, for sure. Especially Geezer. I mean, you could just really pick out, you know, a lot of times for me, I'm not a bass player. And, and a lot of times the bass does kind of fall into the background. It's not very, very noticeable. With, with Black Sabbath, with Geezer's playing, it was always, you could always hear it kind of like bubbling there somewhere in the background. But, you know, also very noticeable. I think that's what's really absolutely and and you can really hear in that guitar solo section and behind the wall sleep their blues jammy influence the cream uh stretching out you can imagine them playing this live and going off and just stretching out on it and then you can really hear that old that that influence in their sound, that little bit of jazzy, bluesy, the way Geezer is playing underneath there with the bends, the way he, he bends the strings to give it that blues scale sound. So it's just super cool. And then it leads into, I always love the way the song ends. I, I guess, the, well, yeah, I guess that's still considered part of Behind the Wall of Sleep where it just goes into that doo ga you know, and the song fades out and, and or the drums, Bill's playing sort of that, that funky Dukaku, Dukaka. There's a part yeah. that's I always love. That's my favorite part is the do Dukaka, Dukaka, Dukaka. And yeah. then it fades out and then the and then the bass comes in. And I remember when I first heard that, I was already playing Yeah, I would have pretty sure I, I was playing guitar at that point. I'm not one hundred percent sure if I had picked up the bass yet, but I wasn't even one hundred percent sure what that was. The way the bass sort of snakes in there and he's playing that rubbery blues, yeah. bluesy solo thing. It was like, wow. And then it kicks into the I know at the time I didn't know what when when he kicks on the distortion in that wah wah pedal for the beginning of NIB, I know at the time I had no idea what that was. I was just like, whoa, what what is this? But you know, going back to Geezer, what an interesting type of player he was. Here, they he has his own bass solo, and again, you can picture them playing these songs live. And that bass solo probably would have been a lot longer. That drum solo that Bill does before that was probably something that they would stretch out on, and they tightened it up and brought these aspects of their live show yeah. onto this onto That's this record. first album. Yeah, so, just super cool and just a great signature geezer butler moment uh that bass solo and the beginning of the beginning of nib yeah i mean i think that's really cool um to, to talk about uh how this album just sounds almost like a live album and of course we know that it was recorded live in the studio with a, maybe just a couple overdubs i think the only thing they really overdubbed was i, I know sleeping village was had some overdubs um, and I guess probably warning because I think there were some doubled leads in that, but everything else was pretty much just like live. So this is almost basically a live album. And, um, and I think ideally it serves the purpose of what an album was supposed to do. And I guess fundamentally should still do is be a representation of what the band sounds like when they play live. And that's where this album was most successful. 
Um, I'm sure when you saw Black Sabbath at this time live, it probably sounded like you were listening like to this. the album. Yeah. You know, barring a few a few subtle differences, but you know, I I think if you weren't able to see them, which most people in everyone in the U.S. probably, unless they traveled, wasn't able to see Black Sabbath. Um, this was the next best thing. Listening yeah. to this album, they gave you a pretty good uh, idea of what they what they sounded like live. Yeah, for sure. And then NIB, maybe the one of the big songs off the album, you would say that had been in their set list. The song Black Sabbath stuck in their set list for forever after that. And then NIB, probably the next long long standing one, maybe the most compact song on the on the album uh the riff i always love the riff uh the vocal ozzy's vocal delivery especially in the your love for me has just it's just great and this is one of my if i had to make a top 10 tony iomi guitar solos this would probably be in in a top 10 because it's iomi at his best it's when he does those melodic down 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 it has the melodic like he built off the riff yeah it's like a riff his guitar solo in itself is of a riff another one that immediately pops to mind is the beginning of the guitar solo in war pigs down 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 that in itself is a is yeah. a riff that people sing along to you know and mm-hmm. the guitar solo just builds really nicely and in, in nib and the way it sort of builds up to a big big climactic thing not not unlike i never really thought of this but not unlike the song black sabbath it just builds yeah really nicely and uh just just a lot of the, the way it moves up and down it's got a slightly groovy feel to it the drums and in the, the verse and everything but the way it drops down and those i guess you would call it the, the chorus and then throw in the subject matter again as a young kid and hearing you know you get to the end of the song and the my name is lucifer yeah yeah, great, you know, I, great song. I think everything that needed to be done to establish what Black Sabbath's intention was was done on this album. I think if there had never been any other album that followed Black Sabbath, I think that they'd probably still be as legendary just off the strength of this one album. Yeah, I agree. And maybe NIB, I never really thought of this, but maybe NIB is the song that sounds the most like what was to come after it like if you were to take a song from here and put it on put it on a uh, paranoid maybe nib might be that song because it's it's pretty compact there isn't any excessive jamming or anything it's it's a pretty i don't know what the what the time is on the song i'm guessing it's not much more than four minutes maybe at the most yeah i would say so well, it's maybe- very well written it's it they it's got changes in it. It's got tempo changes. It's got a more uh, a big Iomi solo. It's got some some jammy type bass stuff from Geezer underneath the so. And in uh, Iomi solo, another thing I'd like to to point out that is this the first time he does this on this record? I I, I think so. Where he starts soloing and another guitar comes in soloing at the same time he did yeah. this on war pigs and he does it throughout various albums but that 
to me is just super cool. There's like these two guitars and they're not playing the same thing. They're, they're no. just sort of crossing paths with each other. And when you got the headphones on, it's just a really cool. It's kind of an interesting sound. thing that, he, that he's doing that. I, I never really felt that I, I could really feel anything from his solos other than, you know, the atmosphere that it was building and, and the way that it fit in with the context of the song. But to take his solo and a lot of them were doubled at this point. And uh, I think combined, you had one good solo. Um, individually, I don't, I don't know why he chose to do that. Uh, maybe it was lack of confidence in one committing to one or the other. But as, as time went on, and as we'll get further into when we go through the discography, by the time he gets to technical ecstasy, I think he really hones in on what his strengths are in uh, composing a solo. And I think some of his best solo work is, is on technical ecstasy, which is an often overlooked album. Uh, but at this point, you know, I think he's, he's building up and, you know, experimenting a little bit. And, and I think the, the overdub two solo thing was more or less in the fact that it was pretty, pretty effective on this album. It, it builds a yeah. lot of, uh, takes up a lot of space. It's a unique up. thing that I can't really think of anybody else who, who was doing something like that. I mean, it's just a unique kind of quirky little thing that he did for the first couple Black Sabbath albums that he sort of, sort of moved away from, but I, I think it's just a cool kind of a uh, signature, signature thing to his yeah, sound. It, it's definitely worth noting because it, it, it's very, very prevalent in the early stuff. All right. Well, what do you think of Wicked World? Wicked World is a great bluesy, heavy song. Um, a lot of different movements, a lot of different things going on in the song, but fitting together seamlessly. Um, Pretty ambitious, I, I think, the way that it all comes together. And of course, if you've ever heard it live in and around this time, it was just like this extravaganza. You know, Iomi goes off on a very long solo, and there's some drum solos and a lot of things, you know, going on in the song. Uh, it was pretty much the centerpiece of the live set at, at, a, at a point in time. Uh, but as it fits into the album, like we said earlier, I mean, I think it. It's hard to imagine it, or it's hard to hear it without Wicked World being the first song in side two coming after NIB. Um, so it's a really cool song. A lot I always, on. yeah, absolutely. And I've always loved the, the hi-hat thing at the beginning. It's mm -hmm. kind of showing off Bill's, Bill's jazz influence and the way it started. Da -da 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 -da. And then it drops down another sort of signature black sabbath thing being born here these these tempo changes where it starts off kind of you know i guess you could say upbeat it's got that jazzy yeah. hi 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 hat thing going on dead dead and then it drops down into the bluesy there is certainly there you hear their blues influence but it's clear that they're doing something different with the blues than cream did than Deep Purple was didn't, didn't anybody else really at that time was doing it. There is that blues influence there, but it's definitely they they do something to it and take it in a direction that makes it sinister yeah. and, and dark sounding. Definitely, it was more exciting. <clears throat> it was less predictable. It wasn't predictable, um, which is one of the things that makes it exciting. Um, you didn't see where where that was going to go. You know, first time hearing it, it's like wow, I didn't I didn't think it was going to take that turn. But they did, and, and they did it, you know, and that was one of the things that was always so cool, and one of their trademarks is that all of a sudden, you know, there'd just be like this, like a... 
electric shift. funeral where they go into this yeah. happy happy part, you know, and then get back down to the dark, yeah. dirty riff. Uh, one of the things that they, I think they pioneered that whole thing. I'm not sure many bands since then have really done that, at least, you know, maybe some of the doom bands, contemporary doom bands, but it's mostly an homage of Black Sabbath. But yeah, I agree. It, it starts off jazzy, very light, kind of a boogie type of thing, and you think it's going to go one place and it goes somewhere else and Really, I'm really glad that it does because it just sounds so cool. Yeah, and I'll tie this into to the next song. I, I think what makes the Black Sabbath as heavy as they are, and this sounds like a contradictory statement, is some of their lighter things because it sets up a contrast. You start off with this upbeat, did it, did it thing, and then it drops into this heavy riff and mm -hmm. to move into the next song it's the same thing in the next song sleeping village it's sort of to me sometimes things like sleeping village were the things that really scared me as a kid because it sounded so murky murky and weird yeah. and it's just just short little quirky little interlude that sets yeah. up again it creates this contrast of light and 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 darkness and uh going back to Wicked World for a second, you know, the Geezer's lyrics, uh, which set the template for a theme that Geezer would return to often, which is sort of this social justice, uh, destruction of the earth, the environment. Uh, Sleeping Village then has just sort of creepy, the, the, the mouth harp thing and the uh, the imagery is sort of bright and bright sun rising, you know, <laughs> and, and again, it just sort of these, these contrasts of light and darkness is, is what for me makes Black Sabbath really heavy. If you look ahead to other albums, it would be hearing fluff and then it goes in somewhere totally different or the song uh, changes and then it goes into something totally different. It was these contrasts that did, are what really made Black Sabbath heavy. Whereas when you get into modern metal, I think way too often people think that they need to be dark and doomy and sludgy all the time. And they don't realize that it was these contrasts of having a song like Sleeping Village, which is one feel to it and then moving into something that a little bit darker and it, it just brings out the darkness more in the other songs. I, I think we, even with Black Sabbath, when they were doing songs that were like, like changes, there's still a, a real heavy emotional vibe to it. That, yeah. You know, the album can still be heavy, still have a, a, you know, a heavy emotional quality to it without having it represented with the guitar tone, you know, and Sleeping uh, Village is a good example of that. It sounds kind of creepy. There's really nothing in that song. It's just that mouth harp and the, and the vocals, yet it, it, it has sort of a weird, creepy, strange vibe to it. And like, like you just said, Black Sabbath could get that emotion across with, they didn't have to do it with just sludgy, heavy guitars. That's why I pointed out at the beginning of this, and I wanted to point out that they're not tuned down on this album, and the song itself, Black Sabbath, is not even in the key of E, so all, all you kids out there that think in order to be heavy, your guitar's got to be tuned down to Z, and you got to be super sludgy and stuff, you don't. Black Sabbath can sounds creepier and darker than a lot of bands with just a mouth harp and Ozzy singing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Just ingenuity. Ingenuity. Exactly. Um, even with Ozzy singing, like uh, soft, breeze blues, soft Breeze Blowing Through the Trees, 
he has like this raspy quality to his voice, which I've never heard after that. You know, it really sounds like an old, and in that particular line that he's singing, it just sounds like a, you know, a seasoned old bluesman, you know, he's like yeah. really in, in that mindset of, of, of blues rock vocal performance and uh, moves away from that pretty quickly. But um, just interesting to note that they all seem to be on the same page and Ozzy included. And, uh, you know, maybe Geezer wrote the lyrics, but it's Ozzy that sells those lyrics. In the way Absolutely. That he sings. You know, I think he's always done that. I think For he sure. didn't get as much credit as he, well, relatively speaking, I think people like to, you know, say Ozzy was, you know, not very talented or he didn't really contribute as much as some of the other members, but I think it was Ozzy's voice that really sold Geezer's lyrics and really made the music very effective. And he, he certainly pulled his weight, I think, as much as anyone else in the band. For and, sure. Uh, I really like the way he sings uh, Sleeping Village. All right, and we come up to the last song on the album, Warning, which is a cover song, but when I was younger, having bought this on cassette, there was no indication that that was a cover song. And to me, it didn't stand out as like, whoa, this doesn't sound like Black Sabbath. To me, it fit in pretty well with, it had a little bit of a different different feel than than the other stuff before it, but it still had kind of a dark feel to it this this guy a uh, love gone wrong uh type of thing uh, the way ozzy sings it he sings it a lot like mournful and bluesy like you mentioned like a lot of the earlier songs so to me it just i didn't even know it was a cover song till till years yeah. later when i i don't know how i found out maybe when i saw the, the vinyl version of it and i looked at the credits on the back but uh it fit right into the album for me and uh, the way the guitar drops down and does its own thing there for a little while I thought was really cool uh, when I first heard it getting to hear Iomi stretch out like that and he plays some little riffy type things and in, in the middle of it which is uh, there's a little bit of an effect on the guitar too I think where one point it, it, it sounds like it gets really echoey at one point and then it sort of comes back in so yeah, just 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 a cool song, and, a, and I guess a cool way to to take the album yeah. out. Uh, actually, Ansley Dunbar isn't credited on the back of the album cover. It isn't, and the, the first format I had this album on was was vinyl, and I I was aware, and I, I kind of vaguely knew who Ansley Dunbar was because I knew he was in I knew he was in Journey, and I think my dad had a couple Frank Zappa albums that I remember seeing. The name rung a bell, and I think it was because of, he was in the Mothers at one point, I think 70, 71. Um, but I did notice that there was the name Dunbar in Warning, and it stood out from the other credits on the album, which were Iomi, Osborne, Ward, and Butler. And then here on Warning, there's Dunbar. So that was one indication that this is something, this was a different kind of a song. But there's nothing that flat out said, this is a cover of Ansley Dunbar's Retaliation. So strange maybe they wanted to keep it a secret <laughs> but he got production or he got a uh, you got money off it right. <laughs> right right <laughs> all right well uh any other thoughts on on that particular song or the album in general uh yeah i mean i i guess this one of the, the cool things about this album is that it's so all the all the first 
I think everybody loves to single out the first six Black Sabbath albums as if they're the only ones you should listen to. And I don't agree with that. But what I, what I will agree with is that they are essential um, to heavy rock music and heavy metal or whatever. Um, and each of those six albums are distinctly different from one another. And this is where it begins. This, this album sounds like nothing that came after. Um, and subsequently, any album that comes after this doesn't sound like the one that follows. But this one in particular, I think, is, is it's a great place to start, not only because it's chronological, but also because it really establishes, I think, what Black Sabbath were always known as, and that was a heavy, heavy blues rock band. And if this album hadn't been established, hadn't been recorded the way that it was, didn't contain the songs that it did, I think that they wouldn't have the identity that they have to this very day. I think this album was what established Black Sabbath and gave them their, their identity, even though they moved away from it very gradually. And by, of course, 1978, they were on a completely different planet musically. But, you know, this album is what gave them their identity. Yeah, and it makes sense in their, in their catalog. And what I mean by that is, you can see the progression. You can see where they're going to go from the first album to the second album. As I mentioned earlier, maybe with a, a song like NIB, you can hear their earlier influences, but it's not a case of like sometimes, sometimes bands first couple albums, you, you mentioned Deep Purple earlier. The first three Deep Purple albums are sort of psych rock records. And if you're somebody who's only ever heard Smoke on the Water or My Woman from Tokyo, and then you were to hear one of those early uh, first three Deep Purple records, you might be like, is this the same band? <laughs> Granted, yeah. it was a different singer and everything, but you can make that comparison with a lot of other bands, the first two UFO records. To, that sure. was kind of a common thing back then where your first few records, you mentioned Journey, Ainsley Dunbar and Journey, the first few Journey records are, are like instrumental fusion albums. So that was common back then for bands to sort of search for their sound for the, on the first couple records and Black Sabbath, although they still have a little bit of a foot in where they came from as a blues band, you can see that it's pretty well formed and you can hear the, the seeds being planted from where the band would go with the riffing, with the jamming bass underneath the solos, with the subject matter and like in Black Sabbath or Wicked World, uh, so you can see where the seed was planted. That's a good way I sort of look at it. It's like this was, the seed was planted here. The tree was starting to sprout up. Uh, it doesn't stand out to me. Like, yeah, it does sound a, a, a little different. It does sound different than the other albums, but it makes sense to me when I put them all in order. It doesn't, it isn't a situation like, the Deep Purple albums or something where it just sounds like it's just a different band. It still sounds like the same band. It just sounds like this is them discovering their sound and coming, coming into them, into themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think this album just got the ball rolling. I, I think that it was their starting point and they worked off the momentum of this album and they just kept on going, you know, for the next four or five, four, four or five albums. I think by, uh, 76 things are starting to wind down getting a little bit uh, probably less than enjoyable for them but yeah they're they're definitely flying high up until uh, and including um sabbath bloody sabbath i think by 
sabotage things were starting to get old you know some business issues management things like that and as we move forward and we talk about sabotage you know it'd be interesting to contrast where they are at that time versus where they started out but yeah indeed black sabbath all right black sabbath black sabbath well we would like to thank you for listening today uh please go to our facebook page we have a facebook page facebook.com slash into the void a black sabbath podcast you can leave comments there we also post the audio for our episodes on youtube we are on spotify hopefully soon to be on apple and all these streaming services so we would like to thank you for listening and we will be talking to you soon a lot. Take care, everybody.